the world is full of messaging. The world is full of messaging. Everywhere we look, someone or something is giving us something to think about or something to purchase. Everywhere we look, someone or something is giving us a message. And behind, behind all the messaging are ideas. And it might be a cool thought experiment for you guys. Is when you hear a message, maybe it's an advertisement or just something you hear or see. Ask yourself, what's the idea behind this? So, because every, behind every message is an idea. Messages don't just pop up in existence, you know, out of nowhere. Ideas are behind messages. Um, uh, really, what's being sold to us is the idea, not the message or the product. And these ideas are usually ideas about what's good or what's bad, what's what what we need to make us happy how we should live or how we should not live, how we should think about our families or our money, how we should think about work or sex. There are ideas behind the messages. And think carefully about those ideas as you hear the messages. There are all kinds of messages that are bombarding our lives, our eyes and our ears every day. All kinds of messages about all kinds of things, including God. There are all kinds of messages in the world about God, about what God's like, about whether we can even know God, whether there is a God. If He can be known, how do we know Him? If we can know Him, then what does that look like? Do we go to heaven? What is heaven like? Is there a hell? What is hell like? Um, do, do we have um, an ability to communicate with this God if there is one? There are so many messages about God in, in the world. And we, as Christians have a distinct message about God. We have a very distinct message about God, in fact. And our message about God has gotten us into a lot of trouble with the culture around us for 2,000 years. For example, in the early centuries of the church in the Roman Empire, there were gods everywhere, little g gods everywhere. Every region, city, even trade guilds had gods, little g gods, even wealthy families had household gods. And so when you went to visit someone or a city or a region, you would normally pay homage to the gods, maybe by lighting a candle or doing some sort of act of worship uh, when you visited a new region or a, a, a house or a friend. But Christians said, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't pay homage to other gods because we don't believe in any other gods. We believe there's one God. So this was offensive and off-putting to the culture around these Christians in the Roman Empire. People started hating Christians because of this. In Acts 19, there was almost a riot in the city of Ephesus because Christians were hurting businesses there in Ephesus uh, of those who were making idols out of silver. Christians were considered dangerous because they were upsetting the social order, because they wouldn't honor all the deities. They wouldn't pay homage to all the gods. The Romans... Interestingly, the Romans, the culture then isn't very much different from the culture now, by the way. I'll tell you why in a second. The Romans thought they were the ones being open-minded by believing in all these gods and wanting everyone to kind of honor all these, these deities. The Romans thought they were open-minded, but actually they were being closed-minded and intolerant to Christians, the Christian view of God. So they were open-minded to everyone's view of God except the Christian view of God. And not much has changed in the 21st century. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, 
says that modern people believe that the sacred is now inside of us and no one can question it. We're the first culture in the history of the world in which identity is deified. And no one can, no one can question your identity because there are no rules outside of ourselves by which to judge it. So what you say, you are, you are, and no one can question it. So if a Christian disagrees with your identity, then the Christian is a bigot, and the Christian's a danger to the social order. The Christian isn't bowing down and lighting candles to the household deities. So they're dangerous. They're upsetting the social order. But we say, no, we're not the ones being intolerant by telling you that we don't want to pay homage to your gods. You're the ones being intolerant by telling us that we have to agree with your beliefs. It's the intolerance of tolerance. D.A. Carson has a great book on that, by the way. The Intolerance of Tolerance. Our message as Christians about God has and will get us in trouble with the surrounding culture. Our message, the messaging of the church of Jesus Christ, is very specific. We'll talk more about it in a minute. The messaging of the church is very specific. And it, by definition, by nature of its, its content, by nature of the ideas behind the message... It will upset the people around us. We just need to be prepared for that. Some of you are like, yeah, I know that. I work with these people. I live with these people. They're in my home. They're in my dorms. They're in my classes. You're not new. This is not new. This is not a new experience for the church. Our messaging will come into conflict with the messaging of the world. Our culture is full of messages about God, how we should live, just like the Christians in the first century their, their world was full of messages about God and how they should live. So when the Apostle John writes his little letter, 1 John, to these churches around Ephesus, in and around Ephesus, he's writing to them, but he's also writing to us. He's writing to people just like us who are wondering what to do, how, how to live in a world full of messages about God. How are we supposed to live in a culture like this? How, how do we know who to believe? How do we know that our our Ideas are the right ideas. Why can't we say our ideas are true and those ideas are true? Why can't we just all be true so that we don't actually disrupt anything or make anyone upset? John is writing to us. He's talking to us about how to live in this kind of culture, this kind of 21st century, pluralistic, I might even say pagan culture, where little g-gods are everywhere demanding that we pay them homage. So what are we supposed to do? John tells us two, thing in our, two things in our text this morning. 1 John 4, if you haven't found it already. 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Grab a Bible, open it up. 1 John 4, 1 through 6. He tells us to do two things. He tells these Christians, and by, um, by implication us, he tells us to listen closely to the messaging. And then he tells us to listen closely to the apostles. Listen closely to the messaging. Listen closely to the apostles. So verses 1 through 3 is listen closely to the messaging. Verses 4 through 6 is listen closely to the apostles. Listen closely is the title of this sermon. Listen closely. So maybe that's where we start. Just again, just so we're, you're being bombarded with messages. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening? John is going to say, listen closely. And then he's going to say, listen closely to the apostles. Number one. Listen closely to the messaging, verses 1 through 3. First John 4, 1 through 3. Good to see you, Jonathan. Welcome back, brother. Jonathan's on his way to New York 
Y'all talk to him afterwards. Sorry, let's go. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John says, listen closely to the messaging. Verse 1 says, there are messages in the world that are not from God. Specifically, John is saying that we'll encounter people who claim to speak for God who don't actually speak for God. So we need to be listening closely to what they're saying. Now the thing about messaging is it's not always immediately obvious what the ideas are behind the message. I'm talking, let's, let's zoom out about messaging in general, not just someone teaching in a setting like this or whatever. But messaging in, in, in general is sometimes very obvious what's being taught or what the ideas are. Sometimes it's way more subtle, isn't it? Let me give you a couple of examples. For example, on the obvious side, um, messages sometimes are very obvious. One time, um, this, uh, one of my um, favorite bands is Matchbox 20. Okay? Child of the 90s, don't judge me. Um, Susie and I went and saw them in concert recently. It was a blast. Had a great time. But before one of their songs, Rob Thomas introduced the song by saying, almost as like a throwaway line, that this song was about the one night stand. And then people cheered and people sang along. The idea behind the message of that song was that having sex with anyone, anytime is okay, just a normal part of life. Even to be celebrated, pursued. But I couldn't help but think and look around how crazy it was that people were celebrating something that has destroyed so many relationships and families. That was an example of an obviously bad message. Okay, and I still enjoyed their music, just not that particular song, by the way. Sometimes messages are very obvious and we need to just call it what it is. That was promotion of something wrong. A lot of times, maybe most of the time, messaging is more subtle. Messaging is more subtle. And it doesn't always have to be bad, by the way. Messaging and ideas are, are good or bad, okay? So sometimes messaging is more subtle. For example, in the new Barbie movie. <laughs> Don't judge me, okay, guys? There's actually some profound ideas in this movie that you will be surprised um, at some of the things that are actually being taught in this movie. I was pleasantly surprised. One of the main ideas, as Professor Jared Wilson at Midwestern Seminary points out, he says that one of the main ideas really being taught subtly in the movie is that real people are more interesting and complex than images. That real people are more interesting and complex than, than images. That people, the idea really is that people aren't just images. People are image bearers. Now, the writers of the movie didn't have the theological vocabulary to kind of fill in those gaps, but we know what they're trying to say. They're trying to say that people are more than images. People are image bearers. One of the main ideas of that movie is that in a world full of depressed and disappointed people trying to live vicariously through online avatars, whether it's gaming or whatever it is, people living trying to live through online avatars, really the self is actually greater than what we project to the world. 
The idea behind the message is that people are more important than images of people. Do you see that? If you've seen the movie, do you understand? You don't have to go see the movie. <laughs> people are more important than images of people. In a world where we're all increasingly lonely and isolated, that's actually a really good message. Actually a really positive and needed message, I would argue. We need to hear that sort of thing because God made us to be in relationship and community with real people. Real people, not images of people, not avatars, but people. Image bearers are better than images. So do you see how messaging can be sometimes very obvious or sometimes more subtle? Messaging isn't always super black and white. So when, when we're listening to things or watching things or whether it's a sermon or a song or a movie, a YouTube video, a professor in one of your classes, a family member talking at you know, Thanksgiving, or a book you're reading. When you're, listening, when you're digesting messages, John is saying that we need to be listening. We need to be listening. There are ideas behind the messages. The ideas are sometimes hard to pinpoint, so we need to listen carefully. And John is saying unapologetically that we can't believe everyone. We can't believe every message. He says it plainly. Do not believe every spirit. Which I take to mean, by the way, when he says spirit, your Bible probably has it in lower caps, I hope. It's not the Holy Spirit. When he says spirit, he's referring to something along the lines of a teacher who's animated by some sort of spirit, good or bad. He's saying don't believe everyone who claims to be speaking with the spirit, capital S, the idea is that behind every teacher is a spirit, whether the Spirit of God, capital S, or as he says in verse 6, the Spirit of truth, or a false spirit, or verse 6, a spirit of error. Especially, he's addressing religious instruction. When it comes to religious instruction, so when someone's talking about God or the things of God, theological things, spiritual things, John is saying that behind every teacher is either God or the devil, the Spirit of truth or the Spirit of error. And that we shouldn't just believe everything we hear because someone claims to speak for God. We can't just believe everyone. John is urging us not to make the mistake of thinking that everyone who speaks for God is from God. He tells us to investigate the source of everything we hear. Sometimes the message is obviously bad. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes it's subtle. Christian faith, by the way, this, this is instructive for us because it also tells us that the Christian faith isn't a blind faith. Some people will accuse us of just having a blind faith. We turn off our brains, you know, we check our brains at the door. There's even a little apologetics book for teenagers called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. A lot of people will accuse Christians of just not being, you know, using our mind. We're just leap of faith. We're just believing something because someone told us to. But no, John is saying actually the opposite of that. He's saying you put your thinking cap on, you think. You think carefully about what's being said. You think, you weigh the options and you think. He's saying that faith is, a, is, is rational, not irrational. We don't, Christians don't just believe everything indiscriminately. We, we have a considered faith. You should tell people this. Who, who just, we have a considered faith. We consider the options and we choose truth. We're after truth. We're not after that, uh, that which just sounds good. We're after truth. We have a rational faith, a considered faith, a thought-out faith. So he says, 
we need to consider what we're hearing. And then in verses 2 and 3, he tells us how to do this. Look at 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So John gives us an objective doctrinal test to use to distinguish those who are from God from those who, who aren't. He states it positively first. Every teacher who acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Then he states it negatively, saying every teacher that doesn't confess this about Jesus is not from God. Now, by the way, that's not all you have to confess or believe about Jesus to be a Christian. He would say elsewhere there are other things like... Uh, propitiation, we'll see that next week, that Jesus not just came in the flesh, but He died on the cross for our sins. So He's not saying here that this is all you have to believe. He's saying that this is at least part. If someone says this is not true, then they're not true. That Jesus came in the flesh. He was a man, a physical flesh and blood man. He came from God. He wasn't a spirit or an apparition. He came in the flesh. Now He also would say in this letter and in His Gospel that there's more to believe than just that. But by way of example, he, he's saying you can't believe less than this. Every person who believes this believes the spirit of truth. Every person who believes that he didn't come in the flesh believes a spirit of error. A spirit of Antichrist. Did you notice that there at the end? The spirit of Antichrist. Earlier in chapter 2, he says that many Antichrists have already come into the world. A lot of times we think of the Antichrist as some figure who will come at the end of time. and he, That's true, by the way. See, 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. But John says, no, 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 the Antichrist, by the way, he's the only one who uses that word. Paul doesn't use the word Antichrist. John does. And John says the Antichrist has already come in the world, and lots of them have come in the world, and they're already here, and they're everywhere. What they're doing is they're teaching things that are Antichrist. They're teaching a false Christ. They're driven by a spirit of error, an evil spirit, not a spirit of truth. Behind them, behind these human teachers, are evil spirits trying to diminish the glory of the God-man and promote false ideas, false messaging about Jesus Christ. This is serious stuff. John is saying that there will be teachers in the world who claim to speak for God that are actually animated by evil. Which, by the way, if anyone stands in this pulpit, myself, Jared, or anyone else, stands up here and starts saying things that contradict the Bible, you should talk to them first. <laughs> and if they keep on and persist, you should fire them. I'm serious. It's your responsibility, church. We're a congregational church. We're elder-led, not elder-ruled. You are responsible for the teaching of this church. Amen? Amen. You have the Bible. It's in front of you. You, ha- you have it. If someone starts preaching another Christ, it's your responsibility to do something. John is saying that bad guys don't always wear dark clothes. Lots of Christians and churches no longer believe that wolves exist. We, a lot of churches and Christians use all the wrong measures to judge a person's message. We think, well, if, if they lead a big church, if they have a big organization, have a large following on the internet, have lots of education, write lots of books... Maybe it's just as simple as, hey, they're funny and engaging, they dress well, and they're, you know, they're, they're nice to look at. Well, I'm going to just unconsciously believe what they say. I'm going to assume that what they're saying is true. But John says, no, 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 there's a much more basic and important way to understand whether someone's true or not. 
whether we should believe someone or not. He's saying content. He's saying listen to the content. Listen to the content. Not, not how it's presented, not how popular they are, not whether they have a seminary degree even, not whether they have books that they've written, not whether they have a large church or, or whatever. He's saying, what are they saying? Listen to the words coming out of their mouth. Listen to the content. This is why I always tell guys who teach or preach in our church to focus on their content. Delivery is not unimportant, but content is more important than delivery. Interestingly, Augustine actually said that delivery is really important. He was a trained rhetorician before he was a Christian. So he was all about delivery. He was a, he was a master preacher, Augustine was. But he himself says that content, the, he literally says, the Bible is more important than a, a person's uh, rhetorical abilities. Now, by the way, God can and does use rhetorical abilities to transmit the content to people. So, right, none of us want to listen to a boring preacher. Amen? Don't say that too loudly. <laughs> like, if, you just, if I just stood here and read, you know, you know, with monotone, you know, you would be asleep in five minutes, and you should be. This is the Word of God. This is something to be excited about. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our life. This is our breath. But even Augustine says that delivery is not the most important thing. John says delivery is not the most important thing. The size of your church, the amount of education, how he's dressed, how fancy his shoes are. <laughs> doesn't matter. What's his content? What's his content? One of the reasons we read creeds and confessions in our worship service is because we want to be crystal clear on what we believe about Jesus. Some have said, John, this just feels really Catholic. Well, it's not Catholic. It's actually just pretty Protestant, actually. Protestant churches have done this for a long, long time, longer than we've been alive. One of the reasons we read those confessions, like a Ligonier statement on Christology this morning, is we want to be very clear about what we believe about Jesus. Why? Because there are lots of Jesuses out there. There are lots of Jesuses out there. In fact, you might even consider for yourself, are you believing in the Jesus of the Bible, or are you believing in a Jesus that you've heard about, a Jesus that you would like to believe in because it, you know, he agrees with all your positions, he agrees with you. There are lots of Jesuses out there, but there's only one real Jesus. And if salvation is found in him, then it just makes sense that we do our best to get him right. To get him right. To make sure we're clear about who he is. Who is he? Well, as we read this morning, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. He's not half and half. He's fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin. He lived the perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross not just because he was a good guy, but, but as a sin-atoning, wrath-absorbing sacrifice and substitute for us, bearing the punishment that our sins deserve. And then, on the third day, he rose physically from the dead, not as a ghost or an apparition or as a hallucination, but he rose in the body, in the flesh. He rose up from the dead so that his disciples, his followers, could literally see him. I've read it this morning where he's, he meets Mary in the garden on the first day of the week. And Mary thinks he's the gardener. Until he says, Mary, and she recognizes it's him. Isn't that interesting, by the way? That she recognizes him when he says her name. That he knows his people's name. And when he says our name, we hear his voice and we know it's him. Mary knew it was him. Mary knew it was him. It wasn't some vision or dream or apparition. Like he was right there speaking a word to her, her name. He rose physically, bodily from the dead. 
He ascended to the Father 40 days later. He sits at the right hand of God where He reigns over the entire universe. He waits to come back to the earth where He will he'll do a lot of things. He'll, he'll defeat His enemies. He'll, he'll bring in a new heavens, a new earth, set up the kingdom of God, and He'll bring His children to Himself. He'll make all things new. He'll resurrect the world and resurrect His people and defeat His enemies. We believe in a Jesus that is infinitely above us and forever with us. We believe in a Jesus who is so precious that He is worth living for and dying for. We believe in a Jesus that the Bible says is the only way to know God. In other words, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. Not know about Him, but know Him. If you don't personally know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't have a relationship with God. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the real Jesus. So we have to be clear about who He is. We have to be really clear. So when messaging about Jesus is going out, we need to listen closely. This is number one. Verses one through three. Listen closely to the messaging. Number two. John says we need to listen closely to the apostles. Listen closely to the apostles. Look at what he says next in four through six. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, these false teachers, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The main thing John is saying here is that the people of God will listen to the word of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. The us is John and the other apostles. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. The people of God listen to the word of God. You may think, wow, this John is actually pretty audacious he's making a pretty audacious claim to speak directly for God and then not only does he say we speak for God but he says anyone who doesn't believe their message doesn't know God that's pretty audacious right what if you said that to your friends and probably some of you as you've shared the gospel you have said those sorts of things like hey this is God's message these other things aren't from God I assure you the Mormon message you know the Jehovah's Witness like these aren't from God the gospel is from God I'm telling you God's word. That doesn't usually go over super well. It's a bold claim. It's an audacious claim, isn't it? It's a really bold claim, but it makes sense that John would say this. It makes sense if you think about the nature of truth and the nature of who John is. It makes sense if you think about the nature of truth. Truth, by definition, is narrow. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Truth, by definition, is necessarily narrow. In other words, if I say the carpet is red, that means the carpet is not green. Right? It's not brown or blue. The carpet is gloriously red. It's, it's narrow. It's, if you say Jesus is God in the flesh, that means that Jesus is not a merely human teacher. He was a human teacher, but he's not mere, it means he's not merely a prophet or merely a miracle worker or merely a spirit or a ghost or an apparition. If you say Jesus is God in the flesh, then that means He's necessarily one thing. He could be other things, but it, it would mean He is God in the flesh. Truth is narrow. 
by nature. If you say that Jesus' death on the cross paid for sins, then it either did or it didn't. Either Jesus' death paid for sins or it didn't. There's not a third option. Jesus is either the only way to know God or He's not. Truth by definition is narrow. So John isn't being prideful when he says, whoever knows God listens to us. He's being logical. He's saying that the nature of truth is, is, is narrow. But it also makes sense that he would say this if you remember who he is. It makes sense that he would say something this audacious if you remember it. He was one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He was one of the 12 men who followed Jesus around for three years, listened to him teach, saw him do miracles, saw him die. In fact, he was standing at the cross. We don't know if the other disciples were there. We know that John was at the cross. Read the end of John's gospel. He was there standing by Jesus' mother. Because Jesus told him from the cross, hey, behold your son, behold your mother. He told John to take care of his mom. He saw Jesus breathe. He saw Jesus hang naked on a piece of wood and suffocate to death in his own blood while he held his mother who was likely weeping. You know, this is the John who writes this. This is the John who also on the third day saw Jesus. Well, he saw the empty tomb first. He outruns Peter. I love that detail in John's Gospel. They both start running and it says the disciple whom Jesus loved outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Maybe Peter was a little heavier. I don't know. Whatever. John was really excited. But then interestingly, not to knock on, Peter is the one who goes in first. John stays kind of hesitatingly at the entrance looking in. Peter goes in to investigate. There's something really bold about Peter. This is the John who would later eat a fish breakfast with Jesus beside the Sea of Galilee after Jesus had died. So Jesus died. Later he has breakfast with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus cooks fish. This is the, Jesus, excuse me, this is the John who later starts preaching and teaching, leading churches, even being exiled to the island of Patmos for his beliefs. He paid a high price to teach about this Jesus. Tradition even says he was eventually boiled alive in a pot of tar on the island of Patmos. If, this John, if John knew that his message was false, if he knew that he was preaching false things about Jesus, it's unlikely he'd given his life for it. Liars don't make good martyrs. People don't generally die for something they know is false. So when he says, whoever knows God listens to us, whoever is not from God does not listen to us, don't hear that as pride. Hear that as an invitation. Hear that as a humble invitation. Hey guys, he's saying, this is logical this is, truth is narrow, this is logical, and I was there, I know this is true, I'm not twisting your arm. This is an invitation for us to consider carefully what we think about Jesus. One other thing about John, who he is, remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus takes three of his disciples, James, John, and Peter, up on top of the mount, where the Father reveals the Son's glory, and then the Father audibly speaks and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. And Peter, James, and John are terrified. They hit, the, I mean, any of us would have done this. They hit their faces on the ground. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
So what John is doing here is he's simply trying to help people do what God told him to do. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Listen to me. I was with him. I know what he said. I know what he did. Listen. Listen. This is God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. If you want God to be well pleased with you, listen to Jesus. Get close to him. Listen to his gospel. And you'll find the pleasure of God. So what about, what about you? Are you listening to God? Are you listening to Jesus? The main theme here is that God's people listen to God's word. Are you listening to God's word? It can be hard to know whether we're really listening to Jesus. It can be hard to know whether we're really saved. I've talked about this a little bit in our series. It can be hard to know whether we're really Christians, whether we really believe. or we're, Our faith is like shifting sand, blown by every wave, isn't it? Sometimes we feel like we're all in and we can storm the gates of hell. And then other days we wonder if any of it is even true. So how can we know whether we're really listening to Jesus, whether we're really listening to His apostles? Well, some ways um, to do is just consider, to know whether you're doing it, is consider your response. How do you respond to the words of Jesus? How do you respond to God's Word? Those who know God hear the word of Jesus and things happen. God's word has a creative power in their life. What kinds of things happen when, when God's word is working in our life? Well, I have two things in mind. Two A words, affection and action. Here's where we're going to end. I'm going to summarize these things for you. Affection and action. We can know we're listening to God's word. We're really hearing God's word when there's affection and when there's action. So when we hear the story of Jesus, when we sing about it, when we read about it, when we hear someone talk about it, something stirs in our hearts. In the deepest part of us, feelings, yes, feelings of love and wonder and, and rest and peace and acceptance and belonging start to happen inside of us. The things that feel big in our lives start to feel smaller. The things that feel overwhelming start to feel more manageable. As we listen to Jesus, He starts to get bigger and everything else starts to get smaller. Fear and anxiety start to loosen their grip on our hearts and faith and courage start to rise. Not perfectly and not all the time like in an amazingly obvious way, but don't you remember how the Bible sounded to you before you were a Christian? It was boring and lame and you could care less. But now you hear the Bible and you love it. Most of the time, let's be honest. Sometimes you're like, oh, I'm just tired, John. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I get it. Me too. But something shifted inside of you. Something subjective shifted. Now you hear the words of Jesus and something happens inside of you. So when people hear the word of God, when the people of God hear the word of God, affections happen. Affections grow. Affections are birthed. Affections start to increase. Another thing that happens though is action. So affection and action. When people truly encounter Jesus through His Word, when people truly encounter Jesus through His Word, they're not left the same as they were before. Things change. Think about every great adventure story. I kind of have Lord of the Rings in mind here, but it applies so much more broadly than that. Think about every great adventure story. And yes, of course, Lord of the Rings is the greatest, so there's no debate about that. Every great adventure story, think about what happens. There's a hero who journeys to into the unknown, and does things they never thought they could do, usually for the good of the ones they love the most. The hero then returns home a changed person because of the sacrifices they made. 
that hero, they're not amused or bored by the same things anymore. Their love of family and friends and their love of life itself seems deeper and richer, more, more profound than it was before. Richer, more, more real than it was before. Something about their journey forever changed who they are. Something shifted because of their journey. And I think that's what happens when we, when we truly encounter Jesus in His Word. When we truly encounter, when we, when we understand that He's the hero in the journey, by the way, not that we are. That He's the one who left His home. That He's the one who made the hard journey into the unknown. Took it, taking a cross, making a sacrifice for the, those He loves the most. Then returning home, if, it, if you will. Rising from the dead to gather together all the children of God. To live gloriously in heaven where He waits to bring us. If we're listening to Him, if we're hearing His voice, then we'll start to be like Him. We'll start to also return home, if you will, and we won't be amused or bored by the same things anymore. The changes will be slow. The changes usually will be slow. And it may feel like we're walking backwards at times. And there'll be a weird draw back into the far country in our hearts that we'll fight for the rest of our lives. But something changed. Something changed. And out of that change, action comes. We have a new life, a new way we think, a new way we talk, a new courage, a new love for people, a new love for the church, a new love for God's people, and all of our diversity, a new love for people who are very different from us, a new love for the poor, a new love for people who the rest of the culture dismisses, ignores, or marginalizes. A, a new love for the lost, those who don't know this Jesus. A new love for the Bible. A new love for singing. A new love for praying. A new love for the church. A new poise. A new confidence that everything will ultimately be alright because of Jesus. Because of our hero who went into the far land and came back a victor. And if we follow him, we'll also come back a victor. It will be okay in the end. We have that kind of confidence that starts to rise. Jesus' word, here's my point. Jesus' word, when it's truly encountered, has a creative power. Remember Genesis 1? God said, let there be, and it was. In other words, God's word, it's not just word, it accomplishes things. Our, our words aren't like that, are they? <laughs> we can't actually make anyone do anything. God speaks and things happen. So if you've heard His Word, affections are happening, actions are happening, a new way of life is happening. Verse 4 kind of alluded to some of this. This is a pretty popular verse. Notice what verse 4, John says that the Word makes us people who overcome the evil one or evil teaching. You are from God. You have overcome them. You're overcome them. Don't fear those false teachers. You're overcomers. For He, God, the Spirit, who is in you is greater than He, the devil, who is in the world. The Spirit of God, he's saying, is greater than every false spirit. So we now have the ability to discern what's true and false. We have the ability to live in this world with confidence that we are of the truth, not of error. That we have the ability to live the lives God calls us to. Paul says it this way, that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love, power, and self-control. When God's Word really lands on us, Things change, things happen. 
The Word of Jesus creates people who have new desires and new desires come with, with new, des- new, new desires come new abilities to act on those desires. So, one way to tell whether we're really listening to the words of Jesus, one way to tell whether you're hearing the truth of the messaging of the cross, whether you've really taken it to heart, is to consider your life. To consider the objective test as its content, and then the subjective, te- uh, subjective test is the kind of life that it produces. John says throughout this letter that those who truly know God, truly know the real Jesus, will have a new life. They'll want to love God's people. They'll want to live like Jesus lived. So, the world is full of messaging. The, wor- the world is full of messengers. Everyone is trying to tell you something. And behind those message- messenger- messengers and messaging are ideas. Are you listening closely to those ideas? Are you considering, are you processing the things you're hearing? Are they things that are, that are pleasing? Are they things that are good? Are they the classic Christian, you know, uh, Renaissance classical way of education is to focus on what's uh, true, good, and beautiful. True, good, and beautiful. Are the things that are behind the messages true, good, and beautiful? True, good, and beautiful. Are you listening closely? John says we should listen closely to the messages coming our way and listen closely to the apostles' messaging. And that the apostles' message has the final word. So are you listening? Are you listening closely to what you hear? And are you listening closely to what the apostles have said? Are you listening? Are you, are you listening closely? Let's pray together. Father, all of us are hearing lots of things, even in our own hearts, our, our thoughts, as Paul says in Romans, they accuse us or excuse us. Our own consciences can't always be trusted. The evil one is at work. He's sending mess- messaging messengers our way. The world is full of messages about who you are, about what's true, good, and beautiful. So, Father, help us. Help us to listen closely. Give us ears to hear and to discern. Help us to always listen closely to the apostles and to be willing to pay a price uh, to stay true to their teaching, to your teaching through them, and to be willing to pay a price in this culture that wants us to pay homage to its gods. Help us to be willing to say, no, we can't do that. That's not what we believe. We will love you. We will be the best neighbors. We will be the best citizens we can be. But we will not bow our knees to anyone else but King Jesus. So give us ears to hear your truth, your voice, and give us confidence to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.